I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. on your lap as you scream along with Prince. How can you just leave me standing? And you're bang, bang, banging back on the neighbor's wall yelling, no, you shut the fuck up. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. This is day 68 in the Corona Apocalypse bunker. As you can hear, things have gone a little weird. That is an excerpt from Osho McCreesha's book, A Deep and Gorgeous Thirst, which is one of the coolest projects that we've ever had on the program. I'm really excited about it. Before we get to that, taking care of some business, if you go to thebradking.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. While you're there, you can click on the link, bookshop, and that will take you to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast bookstore where you can buy any of the books from people who have been on the program i get a little cash back also goes to support local and independent bookstores on may 29th next friday janelle brown virtual happy hour and book club we filled all 15 slots but if you're interested you can join the wait list and for every 10 people we add we'll be adding dates to that so it's not too late to join and as always please leave a review at 
iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show because that's how we get found. So this is the part of the program where I generally tell you some story about my life or some experience that I had that relates in some way to the thing that we're talking about today. Uh, But I'm not going to do that because I want to talk about somebody else, a guy named Ben Tanzer. Ben is the reason that the program with Osho is happening today. In fact, several folks that have been on the show recently have come through Ben. So I tell people that I'm a writer's writer. I hang out with writers. My life is around writing. My side project is this. My day job is editorial director at a university press, Carnegie Mellon's ETC Press. And so everything that I do is is around writing literature and things like that. Not particularly great at it. I'm okay. I'm a, I'm a I'm a working writer. But really, my joy is just hanging out with other folks that that do this. And I met Ben when I was running the Geeky Press. So we used to do these readings as part of the Geeky Press. Actually, how the Geeky Press started. Uh, I set him up like poetry slams at Indie Reads Books. Uh, I'd bring an audience in and sit him in the round. And it was everybody but poets could participate. So we'd get anywhere between like five and eight readers per show. And you'd come down, graphic novelists, playwrights, fiction writers, short story folks, everybody, except poets. And instead of doing a reading, you had to tell a story in the round. And people would respond. So if they liked what you did, they snapped. If they didn't like what you were doing, they would hiss. There was foot stomping, things of that nature. Good fun. But it was meant to make things interactive. But really what it was meant to do was to introduce people to folks they wouldn't normally come across. Because when you have a reading, oftentimes it's your friends that show up. I figured if I got seven or eight different kinds of people, 83, 85% of the audience, you weren't going to know. It usually took me a while to convince authors that it was going to be okay to tell a story and not read a story. So we did four or five of those. And one of them, because I spent time in Chicago... I'd go up there and hang out at the Green Mill. I'd see Mark Smith's Uptown Poetry Slam, which is the oldest poetry slam in America. Also inspired the name of the program. The uh, Paper Machete took place on Saturdays. They had jazz all night Saturday from midnight to 5 a.m. So I'd just go up there and spend my whole weekend at the Green Mill. And somehow I came across Curbside Splendor Publishing, which was this independent press up in Chicago. And Ben was part of that group. And when I was putting on one of the jams, one of the Downtown Writers Jam, which was the name of the reading series, I said, hey, why don't you bring some folks down from Chicago? And I think I talked to Naomi Huffman and Ben and somebody else there. So they they brought a group of folks down to do my little show. And it was great. And Ben and I hit it off because Ben's also a writer's writer. Only he's a better writer than I am. And he's written a great book about fatherhood, essays. So when he brings me people, I typically pay attention because I think, well, yeah, this is going to be somebody interesting. And Osho was exactly who I needed to hear. DIY, down and dirty, whiskey, tequila, talking about writing. This project that he's done is something that he did himself because... It's a project that's difficult 
where I can see why people who do mainstream literature would think, well, this is weird. Because I worked in my own way in a digital space in a print world, right? Writing, journalism, magazines were all print. And I did digital stuff from the time I hit. And it was a constant fight with the print people to convince them that what we were doing on the, on the digital side was no different than what they were doing. And this is one of those projects where I think, oh, yeah, this is like the zine version of book publishing. It's taking this memoir, this poetry memoir about drinking and life and turning it into an audio thing. It's not even a book, even though it is a book. It's this audio, it's its own entity, though, in the just sort of dirty way and the the DI way and the download way that he went about doing that and, and the way in which he constructs what he wants to do is so on the nose for what my sensibilities have always been. I moved into the professional world, but I never felt comfortable there. I always sort of remembered sitting in these cafes, getting drunk, transcribing Fitzgerald, writing these weird pieces for these tiny magazines that nobody's ever heard of that don't exist anymore. And so it was great fun to have Osho on the show. And I'm really excited for you to hear his project. And I'm even more excited for you to hear our interview. So without further ado, here's Osho McCreesh. Ducking down in the driver's seat to tilt the wine bottle all the way to the sky as the car hurtles down past the university and you really don't even care about what comes next. So how are you guys holding up down there? Oh, I think we're doing okay. Uh, I mean, maybe it's because we, we sort of tend towards, you know, being homebodies anyways, that it's not as terrible as it could be. I mean, I guess I miss restaurants, but otherwise it's great. It's funny. I was talking to another author today and they, they have an eight month old kid. Oh. Uh, yeah. And they were like, yeah, nothing has changed. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we were not going out anyway. So right. Um, we now just do a little bit more during the day, but at night, it's exactly the way that it's always been. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so where you guys are down in, where are you so at? So I'm in, I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or as everyone else knows it, like Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul <laughs> territory. Uh, and what's it like down there right now? Oh, you know, I, I, I mean, weather wise, we're, we're kind of starting to get warm and spring is definitely happening. Uh, uh, culturally, I suppose the uh, the pure madness of uh, of the onset of a pandemic is uh, as everybody's stress ratcheted up some. Although I, I think if we were if we were honest about the changes in our day to day life, um, some might even be a little bit more positive than than negative. But it, it's just hard to say. I think are is it are you guys on lockdown out there yet? We are, yeah, we we are, and the the schools have been the schools have been closed for the remainder of the year now. That just came out this week. Um, at my job, I've been working uh, from home for the last couple of weeks. Um, my wife uh, is a therapist, and so she's been able to do a lot of her stuff via like Zoom and and, and teleconferencing and uh, just phone phone kind of sessions. And so, yeah, we're we're pretty much you know, but for the occasional wander along the ditch banks uh we're we're pretty much homebodies just you know yeah out for essentials and and otherwise try to stay safe 
It's interesting. Uh, I have my first teletherapist in just a day or two, and I'll be uh-huh. really interested to see how that goes doing it online. Um, I think we're going to come back from all of this stuff and really reconsider work-life balance. And like, maybe that could be a thing that comes out of this. That's positive. Yeah. I mean like in the, in the, in the grand scheme of like, everything is terrible and we should have known this better anyway. Like everybody being like, Oh, I can work from home a lot. Yeah, sure. And, And in particular bosses, hopefully being like, Oh, no, about the same amount of work is getting done. So yeah, why not save some traffic, save some, you know, save the environment a little. It's all that all sounds like positive stuff potentially. So yeah, it's been really. I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff, but uh, because I I'm obsessed with news. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching the air quality, like mm-hmm. they'll show like here's Los Angeles ten days into you know the stay at home. And they'll show the air quality and it's like totally blue, no anything. <laughs> and you're just like, oh my God, like if ever there was an argument for climate change, right, like right. 10 days of no driving and it's like, oh, the planet seems to be feeling better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny that there's another correlation that, you know, politically it's expedient for people on different sides of an issue to, to argue whether or not the economy and, and, uh, the health of a nation are linked. Um, some people assert that they are not, but now that we're in the middle of this, you know, tremendous public health issue, uh, you know, a pandemic and, and we're seeing that impact on the economy, like those things are, it's hard to argue that they're not inexorably linked at this point. Yeah. It's even my, even my friends who are differently politically motivated than me, who sure. I've known forever um, and uh, are coming around, are saying things that people like me have said for a long time uh-huh. without it. And this is what's interesting, at least to me, without any connection that they're saying it, right? Yeah, like without yeah. any connection that like, yeah, yes. <laughs> like we agree 100% on that thing you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out you can't be a human alone. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like, uh, I saw all the, you know, when, when they're doing the stimulus checks, the, the $1,200 uh-huh. and, and then the unemployment benefits and like all of, not many, but my Facebook on the, on the right was very much like, well, if he's not your president, don't take the money. And I mm. just, I, I had to fight going back going, well, he didn't want that money. Right. Like that, that came from the other side. So like, it's good. And like the extra $600 in the unemployment came because the Democrats pushed for that. Like, sure. And so like, yes, we, everybody should get that. Not everybody. Like I don't necessarily need that because my job continues. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like I'd be okay if I don't get anything because that should go to people that need it. But it's just one of those like watching the, even though there seems to be a coming together of the thinking and ideas, there still is that cognitive dissonance of like the other side doesn't believe this, even though everybody's saying the same thing. Yeah. It's more like people want credit for saying it. I think (laughs) right. With politicians, that's what it boils down to. Like uh, I said the same thing, but I waved my hand around more. Right. Right. Because you can't hate the other side. If you're like, ah, shit, we said the same thing. Right, like it's exactly. really hard to raise money in an email when you're like, my opponent and I agree. <laughs> we agree completely across the board. <laughs> yeah, we, we should do all this. So, 
uh, now that we've got, like, I feel like every conversation in the pandemic first begins with like, Hey, everybody. Okay. Like, yeah. I don't really know you, but like, let's just make sure we're good. Um, everyone's good here. Yeah. good. So, uh, where were you, where are you originally from? Are you originally from out there? Yep. Born and raised. Really? Yep. Uh, and so what did your parents do? Uh, so, uh, I was, my brother and I were basically raised by my mom. Uh, my mom did, uh, for, uh, I think the earliest job I remember her having when I was a kid was she was a, um, she was a union painter. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was the, she was the first woman in the union, I believe. Um, and did that for a while. Um, then we had, uh, I lived in a little town called Corrales at the time. And I remember, I think this was in third grade. Um, they called me to the principal's office. I went into the principal's office and found my mom sitting there and, and found out that our trailer in Corrales had an electrical fire and uh, burned down. Whoa. And yeah, so that, that kind of started a little, a little patch of our lives where we were you know, a little bit more transient and economically it was, you know, obviously it was a, a, a hardship, um, my mom, uh, shortly after that, maybe when I was about 10, um, was diagnosed with cancer and Jesus. yeah. And so in, uh, and she managed to manage to beat the, the cancer, but ended up on like, you know, food stamps and sure. getting, getting boxes of government cheese and, and stuff. And so we were, we were down in the mall for, for a good little stretch there, but, um, settled out east of the Sandia Mountains, which are the mountains on the, the eastern edge of Albuquerque. We, we lived kind of on the other side of them in a little town called Edgewood mm -hmm. for uh, a, a good stretch. And then I eventually graduated um, high school uh, from uh, uh, an, Albuquerque, an Albuquerque school that I moved to so that I could play soccer. Um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's like childhood in a nutshell, I yeah. guess. And if you were wondering how I ended up, you know, thinking like a Democrat, that's how. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, uh, are you br brother older or younger? Younger, younger by six years. Holy moly. So you were like also helping take care of the kid. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's actually how I learned to cook. <laughs> really? Yeah, for sure. Like whenever my mom was really sick and, and, you know, my brother and I needed, needed to get something, you know, I learned how to make macaroni and fish sticks and the other things that, that we had around pot pies i remember those oh yeah um, we had those a lot yeah yeah those little I frozen ones yep exactly yeah. the frozen <laughs> ones uh and i remember what an extravagance it was whenever we were able to get like like a tv dinner that uh -huh. had you know a little cobbler pocket and yep. you know a salisbury steak like that was that was a tremendous extravagance for us at the time so you got the yeah. ones that had like the tin foil across the top of them. Those are the ones, and you yeah, had to poke holes in certain things and fold <laughs> yeah. back whatever. And yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I mean, thankfully, I cook a little bit different these days, but yes. I mean, for <laughs> now, we'll see what's we'll see what's left in the stores in a couple weeks. Right, right. We might be headed headed for more Salisbury steak as we speak. You may be uniquely suited to survive <laughs> this millennium. Uh, yep. So, what were you guys like? What were you, what were you and your brother like as kids? Like, were you you said soccer? Like, were you jockey, sporty, righty, just kind of yeah, like I keeping think, to yourself? I think uh, I, I think between the two of us, we were definitely both uh, both played sports. We both played soccer. Um, I played you know other sports in mid school and high school basketball, things like that. I played football for a little while because I was 
big enough for it, but I didn't the uh, I didn't care for the the, the coaches and the, the sort of strategies behind the the game of American football didn't didn't you know speak to me the same way that uh, the world's football spoke to me. So um, yeah, I think my if if there's a difference between my brother and I, he's probably a little bit more introverted or he was we, we seem to have, have flopped these days he's um, <laughs> that happens he's a lot more he likes you know going out and you know meeting up you know meeting up with people and i on the other hand i'm like i got i got all the friends i need man i'm good <laughs> right. i am good <laughs> i was just having that conversation with a friend yesterday she met somebody and i was like i don't need i don't need more friends at 47 i am I got them all, and we're just counting down backwards now. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so you're living outside of Albuquerque. Uh, you graduate. So when you graduated, then your brother's like, he's like 12 or 13 when you graduate high school. Yep, yeah. He, he, he you know, started in middle school right up like the last two years when we, we ended up moving back into town. And so he went to a mid-school and then a high school also here in town. And I, yeah, I graduated from high school here and then I went to the University of New Mexico because, um, well, because I got in and <laughs> yeah. back back then it was like 700 bucks a semester yeah. uh, to, the good to, old go to the go to the university. And so if there was one, you know, unbelievably amazing thing that I did in my college career, it was to get out of there without owing a single red cent. Um, what What did you study? Uh, I studied English and I minored in film. So I I pretty much knew by, by college anyways, I knew that I I wanted to, you know, to try to be a writer, to try to do things with uh, any sort of the creative industries. I mean, I'd I'd still, I still would love to, uh, you know, write some screenplays and and write anything and everything. I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, sort of specific in terms of a discipline. I, I want to try writing everything. So, so it, that's interesting. So I grew up in a little tiny, small town. Um, not sounds like a little more well off than you, but certainly not a family that had lots of extra money laying around. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, my dad expressly talked me out of going into English and writing. I got a oh, teaching wow. degree because he was like, well, you should have something to fall back on, right? Like one of the great regrets of my life is that I didn't do that. So how do you make the decision, like coming out of that kind of economic struggle, mm-hmm. then go to college and go, I want to be a writer, seems like a leap of faith. Yeah, you know, I, maybe, maybe <laughs> it's just... Uh, or did you not know any better? I, that's probably, I didn't know any better, to <laughs> tell you the truth. I, I think I probably just felt like, but to me, anyways, I felt like the the point of college was to dip your toe into lots of different things, and by the end, figure out what really spoke to you—the stuff that you were most interested in knowing—and you know, ramp up whatever it was you knew about that. And I mean, I, I don't think I had any sort of delusions about like, well, maybe that's not true. I might have had some delusions about, yeah, yeah, you just become a writer and then you sell a bunch of books and you know that's your job. Um, if, but if I had those, they were, you know, quickly, quickly <laughs> squashed right. um, repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. Over and over. To, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I remember kind of being astonished, uh, after college discovering the small press and, and that, you know, I had heard about the small press cause, you know, Charles Bukowski had, you know, such a, um, 
of his sort of the the foundation of his literary career was built out of the small press and and it didn't even occur to me at the time that that stuff even still existed and I remember finding it kind of after college and I was like oh so this is a this is a good place to you know kind of see where you're at and and start putting together some maybe some publishing credits and and figuring out kind of how to do stuff and uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it worked. And, and I, I guess I never really had it in the back of my mind that I wanted writing to be, I didn't want writing to ever really feel like a job. Yeah. And so whatever jobs I was doing, um, I, I always took a job because I thought it was going to be interesting to me and that I could take something from it for my writing. And so I ended up with, you know, my first job was, as a kid anyway, like fixing fences on a ranch. And then I ended up working in a comic book shop. Um, I spent a lot of years as a bouncer. Um, I also uh, took care of a guy in a wheelchair and and all of these things were like, they, they were interesting and curious to me and into my, the, the writer brain in me. And that was why I did them. And, and it was just, a, you know, just a way to scrape together money until, until I figured out either, you know, what to really do with myself or like, <laughs> you know, until all the, the buckets of money came raining down from heaven. Cause you know, I told somebody I was a writer. So it's interesting. Like when I, I've told this story, particularly to young writers and, and writers that are early in their career talking about, like I graduated college in 1994 mm-hmm. f- uh, four. I say the extra semester cause I'd, I'd quit school for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like, like you, like, I didn't know anybody that was a writer. Like in my town, it wasn't like, there was like 5,000 people when we moved there and about nine or 10 when I left. Right. So yeah. it wasn't like th- there were bookstores and writers coming through. Like I didn't know writing was, re- I knew it was a profession. I didn't think it was a profession that somebody like me could ever have. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated, I literally had to spend, I mean, I spent two years working at a cafe and just, driving around the country and I did it a little bit in college and I would like just like I would leave school for like a week wouldn't go to class would Mm. like get the names of editors at like weekly newspapers and things like that and call them and say hey I'm coming through town can I buy you lunch and would like go meet people in other states that were doing it just so that I could find out like what like like how does this even work (laughs) Like, how did you get your job? And I'm sure some of them were like, what? Like, this is not at all what I thought this was. But if you ask, if you tell somebody that you want to be a writer and you'll buy them lunch, they'll go. True. Yeah. I would use all my money on lunch and gas. So I'd, I'd sleep in truck stops. Mm -hmm. Um, I slept in a, (laughs) I slept on a park bench one night and like had biodegradable soap and like took a shower in like a public fountain. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it was like, I look back on that now and I'm just like, I feel like there must've been a better way to have learned (laughs) how all that shit worked. (laughs) I mean, there probably is, but that, that is one of the things that you never, you know, no one ever gives you the roadmap. Probably right. because there there isn't one. Like everybody's everybody's road is their own, uh, and you know it sounds to me like the way you did it was far more uh, uh, thought out than the way I did, which was like, <laughs> huh? What do you know? I'm, there's a thing you can submit to, so maybe I'll try that. You know? 
Yeah, it's still hard to explain to your parents that you didn't go to school for a week uh, and slept <laughs> on the park benches, and but it's fine because you showered in the fountain. Like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> I'm not just, letting myself go, mom. I mean, right? Any anytime, dude. You know, and I ended up doing. You know, I I ended up working at Wired, and I did okay in the end, but. Like when students or people are like, well, how did you do this? I'm like, the story I'm about to tell you will do you no good. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the opposite of what you should do. Yeah. And if you, if you tell your parents that your mentor told you this and they're going to stop paying your tuition immediately. Immediately. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so you graduate college, you find these small presses and, and, and you're working these, like you begin this sort of series of jobs. Like, are you now writing a lot? Like when you leave... Do you do the actual thing where you write or do you kind of wander around for a bit? Oh, no, no. But by, by the end of college, I was I was writing a lot. I wouldn't say I was writing especially well. But um, in fact, I think that I got I got out of college with one short story I was really proud of. Um, and maybe the idea of the kind of poetry I wanted to write, but but hadn't really written any of it yet. Um but I was writing a lot. I remember it was, it was meant to be a compliment in, in one of my, one of the last few classes that I had, one of the students said, you know, I, I, I really enjoy how seriously you take your writing. And that was curious to me because I thought, well, that means that you don't, like, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, I, I honestly feel like, you know, I was, I was doing my very best with it. I was taking it, you know, as seriously as I could, um, I remember building like a spreadsheet to track submissions and all that kind of stuff that, um, it, you know, back then that, that stuff wasn't, you couldn't get a hold of it. You, you know, right. you'd bump into a little something on the internet that would give you a nugget of uh, a nugget of an idea like, Oh, this is a good way to do this. And, but otherwise that kind of stuff was kind of hard to figure out. Yeah. Um, and those were the, the self-addressed stamped envelopes and, and <laughs> waiting for months kind of days to get things back in the mail. Yeah. which I'm nostalgic for and, and, and still really love getting stuff in the mail. But, um, you know, after years and years of most of that stuff being rejects, it tends to take the shine off of it a little. Yeah. For, I think probably for most of my twenties, I, and I don't have them anymore and I'm really sad about this. Like old me needed to give young me some advice, but I had all these rejection letters from all these magazines and small publishers and weekly, you know, papers that I had pitched to, mm-hmm. um, including one JFK Jr. He, his magazine, George. Oh, right. Yeah. So <laughs> I had gotten two rejections from swing magazine, uh, but they were like handwritten from editors who were like, we really like this. So we like, we really want you to pitch more. And like, if you're in New York, like let's meet. So of course I go out to New York. They don't meet with me, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Uh, and I quit my job as a, as a, as a teacher because mm-hmm. I got those letters and was like, I'm going to make it as a writer. Yeah, and I, 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 I wrote some <laughs> snarky ass pitch to George magazine. And I don't even remember who the executive editor was, but it was like a hand scrawled. You could tell he was furious. Like you will never write for us. Like, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't even remember what I wrote, but I know me and I know me in that time. And I yeah. know it was probably some smarmy ass shit. Yeah. <laughs> that now professional me is like, don't, don't do that. Please don't remember my name. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh my God. Like I didn't know any better. Like I, I literally graduated with a teaching degree and thought like, well, I guess you have to try to make a name for yourself by like being crazy. 
Yeah, I need to stand out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and didn't realize there were multiple ways for that to actually work. Yeah, not stand out in the rain like a fool. (laughs) Right. So uh, you're submitting, you're tracking, you're doing all this stuff, like, and sort of what's happening in in life and career as those things are happening? Like, are you finding success? Um, Well, it's, I mean, I I think that's a relative term. I mean, I think I was finding success enough to to keep going. that short story that I, that I came out of college with was actually the first thing that I ever had accepted. Uh, and it was accepted at a, um, a magazine. Oh, I can't remember the title of it just now, but it was, um, mother road publications put out a magazine at a mind. That's what mm-hmm. it was called. And, uh, at a mind had published, you know, that back, back starting in like, I think the late sixties or early seventies. And they had published, Bukowski and a lot of other writers that I admired. And I thought, well, looky there, you know, I, I thought this story was good and it was good enough for this magazine, but they ended up folding before the issue that it was accepted for ever got printed. And so I remember during that time waiting for, you know, probably a year or something like, Oh, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. I'm, I, you know, I'm a, I'll be a writer. You'll see that I'm going to be a writer. And then, then it didn't come out. And, um, the, the amount of time that it, you had to wait for things for your rejections mostly, uh, took so long that I just started experimenting with the kind of poetry that I thought I wanted to write, uh, at that time. And the turnaround for poetry ended up being a whole lot faster than the short stories that I had bouncing around. And so almost by virtue of speed of rejection or acceptance, I ended up uh, building a, like a little small press poetry career, um, more so than fiction or anything else, even though, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm interested in writing everything. So I'm always kind of working on, working on some new way to challenge myself. And once, once I arrive at a place like with early on, some of my poetry, uh, I became sort of known for a guy who wrote really, really long titles with really, really short poems. And <laughs> um, and as soon as I realized that was becoming a kind of shtick, I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that for the next 50 years. So the only way to do it is to, you know, kill that Buddha and something else. And, and so I admired, you know, like Miles Davis and, and, you know, folks like that, that are just, constantly pushing themselves to, to be and do something different. That's, that's the stuff that I always want to do. Just get out of my comfort zone. I'll see how I do. I do, but it's more interesting to me to try than it is to, to keep grinding at the same wheel. Cause like I said, I didn't want writing to ever really feel like a job. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, I don't, and I don't know if right. I don't know if people outside of writing understand that. But like, you, there comes a point in your career where you literally have to make a choice mm-hmm. about what you're going to do. Like, when I, I never wanted to be a tech writer, but mm-hmm. I happened to know, like, I had been on the internet since 1984. So when people started writing about it around 1994 and like more regular mainstream publications, right, I right. got hired to do this stuff. So my first job, I was writing features, hanging out with like bike gangs and taggers and all kind of weird you know weird ass people i told uh-huh. folks like my I, w- I wanted to write the stories about the people you wanted to know about but were afraid to get to know like mm-hmm. that was like sort of my 
cool gig, except for that I also knew this tech stuff and the tech stuff paid a whole lot more and continued yeah. to pay a whole lot more. For sure, for sure. And so like 10 years later, I ended up being like, oh shit, like my entire professional career outside of that first year of writing was writing about technology, which is a thing mm -hmm. I never wanted to do. And when I walked away from that, I was like, well, literally nothing that I've done. <laughs> like, even though I've written a nonfiction book, it was about technology. Uh -huh. And it was, a, it was, you know, it was a creative nonfiction. So it was a general interest book, but like agents and publishers don't see that. Like, what's your platform? Like, right. uh, nerds, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm not writing nerd stuff. And they're like, well, so you don't have a platform. I'm like, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as I get one, I'm going to turn my back on that one too. Because I don't want to the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise... Yeah, I don't know why being reductive feels like a bad thing. And like people that do it, like people that write series and shit like that, they make a living doing this, right? Sure. So I don't know why like that reductiveness, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to, like, I don't want to say I don't have respect for it because I do because writing's hard and any writing's hard, but it's just like Indeed. not my gig, you know? Like I can't imagine taking the same characters and going next adventure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I mean we're we're doomed or gifted with a drive, whatever drive it was that that you know put us to the the empty page to start with is the one that takes us wherever we end up going. And if you don't feel like building, you know, like world building to the you know like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or you know just book after book after book all in the same realm, if you don't feel like doing that, then granted your agents and things like that are going to be like, you're not doing us any favors by <laughs> right. doing this. But at the same time, like if you're not writing what, what matters to you, then it's not going to matter to anybody else. So. Yeah. And it's just hard too. like, it's, I mean, I don't like talking about the process, but like writing's boring as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and so like picking a thing you don't like, Oh, like you might as well get I me. Mean, my dad worked in insurance. So I don't mean this in a bad way, but you might as well sell insurance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, my, my day job these days, is, you know, I work, I work for an agency, like in an office and the stuff is, is pretty, pretty dull, pretty redundant. And it, it's good because that's the kind of thing that I can leave at the door at five o'clock, five 30. When I leave, I can leave it there and it, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't haunt me and it doesn't like, bleed over into my creative life. And so I've got two completely separate worlds and um, it's better that way. I, I, and I never would have known that when I was younger. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, I, I'm sure I would have accused myself of being some kind of like, you know, sellout or something, but having, having a, the check that comes in every two weeks and, and sort of reliable income it has freed me up to do things creatively that I otherwise never would have been able to do. Yeah. And, you know, I do a lot of, I've just recently bought a whole bunch of my own ISBN numbers because there's, you know, little projects that I do that, that I just want to, to get out and put out there and don't want to wait, you know, a couple of years and find the right best, you know, place it with them or whatever. I just want to get stuff out so I can keep staying, you know, motivated to do more. And so there's a, a big portion of what I'm doing you know, now and, and in the, in the future that, um, I'm of course, obviously open to working with 
presses and places that I admire, but I'm, I'm also going to be doing a lot of my own crazy stuff. So it, there's a certain freedom. I, I know in the last, about five or six years ago, I sort of, I don't know how old you are. I'm 47. Like I passed this threshold where I was like, Oh yeah. Like I'll pit, like I still send stuff out to agents. Like, you know, I still have the big projects that I work on and I'm like, well, we'll see if anything comes of this. Right. But I'm actually way more interested in the shit I do for myself. Yeah. 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 Like, and like you, I'm blessed that I don't have to make a living. I'm an editor at a press. So I actually, you know, I get to work with words all day, but they're other people's words. Mm-hmm. And then I get to come home and kind of do what I want. And there is, uh, I, when I was 21, I would have said I was an asshole. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think my 21 year old self is an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, is, this is way better. So you're doing the poetry. You sort of decide to go in a different way. What direction do you go in? Like, what's the different way? Uh, in terms of writing? Yeah, like you were doing the long, you know, the poems with the long titles and the short yep. things. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, well, so there's a handful of things that happen that, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm becoming known as the guy with the long titles. And uh, I think a lot of my work at that time, anyways, was born of, I, I had a friend who passed away sort of unexpectedly. And that, that really impacted me and it, it made me wonder like, you know, what is, what is the point of everything? Um, and so a lot of my early work was kind of, uh, I don't know, dark and trying to reconcile the, the point of existing in, in, in a world where things can just be taken away from you in an afternoon. Um, and I had a good friend, uh, uh, another poet uh, named Justin Barrett, who I had met um, in real life um, once or twice. And he asked me, he said, what, why haven't you ever written anything funny? Cause he as, as a writer, um, had great range and, and wrote, uh, some really wry and funny things along with, you know, some more, uh, tortured and heartfelt things. And he said, you know, you're, you're funny as a person. Why isn't that in, in your work? And, and I started thinking about that and, and I, didn't really know, actually. I think maybe, maybe part of me, I thought it was, uh, you know, the po- poetry deserved more than, you know, like a fart joke or something. <laughs> but, but, but does I it? no longer think that. I, I, yeah. I think quite the opposite of that, actually. Yeah. I think a great poem that's a fart joke is, is like a wonder to behold. <laughs> um, and so j- just creatively, I saw the opportunity to like, okay, well, this is something that intrigues me and I need to try. And so, uh, I wrote what I thought was probably my first funny poem, uh, and got that thing accepted. And then, uh, shortly after that, I got back in touch with, uh, the woman who I'm now married to. We hadn't seen each other in like 16 years. And I think the, just the joy of that new relationship really powered my, uh, my approach to, the print edition of the the book uh, a deep and gorgeous thirst which is basically a, a giant book about every time i could remember being drunk and a lot of those things are fun and funny uh, uh some of them of course are, are not um but it ended up being a kind of keyhole booze ended up being the, the keyhole that you peered through to get uh you know, a deeper look and sort of autobiographical look at my life, I guess. And so that, that was, that was the thing that really 
you know, put me into a different place in terms of writing is trying to do something funny and then, you know, having that confluence of events that ended up being this giant book of drunk poems. And then, then as soon as that became the most successful thing that I had done, I'm like, okay, well now it's time to try to, you know, finish a novel and forget that stuff. What's the next thing? Yeah, exactly. Just what, what am I on to next? And so that's just kind of, kind of how I do either, either dooming myself or, or gifting myself with the ability to always be kind of, you know, on a back heel and reeling, trying to figure out what to do next. So that, that book, uh, a deep and gorgeous thirst came out when, uh, the print edition came out in, I want to say it was, it was either 2012 or 2013. I think it was, I think it was around my birthday on 2012 is when it came out. And Um, you just kind of leave that aside, right? Like that's, you don't do anything with it until now. Um, yeah. Did you do stuff with it along the way? Uh, well, it took, it took from then until now to actually come up with all of the recordings for the audio version. And that sounds, it sounds kind of silly, but the reason why, so none of those poems have titles. And uh, (laughs) I had a friend of mine who does, he does voice voiceover work, a guy that I knew from my, my theater and writing days back at university. Um, and he had gone to the uh, one of the book release event things that I had uh, for that book. And he told me this would make a great audio book. And I said, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't know how to do it. I don't see how to do it. And he says, easy. Every time the poem changes, you just have a new voice. So everybody knows that the poem is changing and you're good to go. And <laughs> that's why he's him and I'm me. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that's genius. So, um, so pretty quickly. So early in 2013, it would be when that happened. And I started, okay, well, let me just start gathering, uh, gathering recordings. And because I knew I was going to need a bunch of different readers and didn't want it to be kind of all the same. And I wanted it to sort of reflect some of the stuff in the book. Like there's a fair amount of the book that is, you know, my drunken adventures overseas. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, traveling, going overseas, you know, getting, having too much to drink and trying to figure out what I remember about it, um, to sort of mimic that same sort of flavor. I reached out to friends that I knew overseas, uh, friends of my wife, um, other writers and stuff that I know from overseas so that the, the end result is 37 different narrators with, you know, accents from all over the world reading kind of drunken poem after drunken poem um, that ends up being hopefully, you know, three and a half hours worth of, uh, I don't know, good for a road trip anyways, (laughs) provided you can get a beer at the end of it, I guess. Or have a roadie. Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm encouraging roadies, but like, and if people out there don't know what a roadie is, don't worry about it. The ones that do are already doing that shit anyway. That's right. (laughs) And not a thing. So that one, Ben, so Ben Tanzer, who uh, uh, put me in touch with you, who I've known for a few years, when he told me about the project, um, that, that was what was interesting to me, right? Was that, um, you you had this print book because I just 
I guess I should have disclosed this 37 minutes ago. I hate poetry. And so (laughs) I generally, like, and when I ran this literary organization in Indianapolis, I famously would have readings called No Poets, right? Like, everybody was welcome, but I'm like, poets can read anywhere. But like, where can you get somebody that's got a graphic novel or a screenplay? Like, there's never readings for that outside of very specific areas. That's fair. That is fair. Um, And so... It's tongue in cheek, but I also isn't. And so when he told me about this, uh, the thing that interested me was the the whole project, right? The way in which, because it, and then you and I talked and it felt very like, oh yeah, like I'm interviewing myself. Like I'm, this is a restless <laughs> soul who is like unable to commit long-term to a single thing and destroys any chance of actual long-term success because doing the same thing over and over again is just not interesting. Right. Yeah, it's that's a job, man. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I find my writer's block is actually, oh no, you set up a schedule to write. Yeah, right. Like that's what writer's block is. Like exactly. Um, and so you're assembling this, uh, and over the years or whatever, um, is it just people? Well, one, I think it's interesting that you went from the poet that had long titles and short things to the poet that has no titles and longer things yeah yeah right like i'm sure you've washed that around in your head a few times um but also like as you're as you were putting it together there's not really an antecedent to this kind of thing like it's not like you can look at other people i mean i'm not that people don't do stuff like this but like what were you like what was the goal or were you just like ah fuck it this is cool you know i i think uh, initially, I wasn't sure because I wrote I wrote all of the rough drafts for that book. There's 146 poems that made it into the book, and then there's you know a bunch that didn't. Yeah, 146 um, probably that didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I wrote them all in about five weeks. Holy shit! When I when I stumbled on the idea to like okay, rem- write down everything you can remember about every time you've been drunk, and then see what you've got at the end of it. So the the rough drafts happened like super fast. And then um, I think I quickly realized early on that, oh, it seemed like I was writing about drinking, but that's really not at all what I was writing about. And, sure. and, and, and that's like the saving grace of the book, I think. Um, Cause who, who really gives a shit about sitting next to some, you know, big mouth asshole at the end of the bar who's telling you all about, you know, every time he's been drunk, like who cares? <laughs> um, and so Charles Bukowski, that too. He's the yeah, only well, one. He's, yeah. he's, yeah, he's, he's the, the one. one. Yeah. He gets, he gets to do that. Cause he's the first, he's the right. Jackson Pollock of that. So he gets to do <laughs> right. that. Right. Um, yeah. So if, if I was going to try to do that, like who cares, that's been done. And so, so I guess the idea emerged that, you know, I could look at all of that stuff through the lens of booze, but what was happening in every poem is, is a lot more autobiographical. And uh, obviously it linked all the way back to my early work, which was, you know, I I had a friend that died. I I was unprepared for that. Um, A friend that died, a couple of friends that, you know, my my best friends like moved away and started doing their, doing their sort of career things. One in the military, uh, one moved to LA for a while to try to be a writer, then ended up in Vegas. And, and, you know, like all of the things that were familiar to me were being sort of taken away at that time. And so a lot of poems emerged from that period because I was obviously and, uh, and the entire, like booze is a through line that stitched together all the good and bad in my life. Uh, 
you know, sort of landing on the eventual redemption of coming back in touch with, uh, with my wife, Tina, like that, when I looked at the poems individually, then as a, an entire collection, I said, Oh, well, that's, got, that's like right there. Um, and so that's kind of what I, I, I stitched it together sort of cinematically thinking of like a, a sort of redemption yarn where this is where you start and this is where you end. The point being, if you, if you just gut it out, like if you gut it out through the hard shit, there's, there's better stuff on the other side. And when you were thinking about the, the audio stuff, like when, the, when your friend first was like, Hey, do this. Mm-hmm. Did, I guess that's what I was thinking. Like, did you have a plan or were you just like, well, fuck it. Let's just see what this sounds like. Because there's not really an antecedent to that, right? Like, it's not like you can look at other people's stuff and go, oh yeah, this is a, this is how you do this. Yeah, no, that, that is, that's true. Like there, there was, there was, there was only the idea, like him saying, you just have to have somebody else read it, you know, so you know that the poem has changed. Like that to me was enough. Uh, You know, structuring the book sort of cinematically, I figured, so if you're jumping voice to voice, you're driving in your car and you're listening to one drunken shenanigan after, after another, like that would be tremendously interesting, I think. Yeah. And, uh, as long as you're able to track when you're onto a different poem, like you're good, you're set. And so, uh, so that was really, that was the thing that cracked it wide open for me. And then it was just a matter of gathering them all, which took, like I said, about seven years. (laughs) Yeah. I I am glad that there was no more thinking into it than like that. Right. Because this is one of like, I don't, and I think this is my failing as a writer, or at least it is my, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a failing or not. I feel like it's a failing because all writers feel like they are failures. <laughs> sure. Um, that if I sit down and try to plot out what the thing is going to be, yeah, it's yeah. shit. It's complete and utter shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if I, because I come from a, like I come from a line of storytellers. Like I come from sit around the campfire and like bullshit and like mm-hmm. um, you sort of weave, you kind of know where you want to end, but you're not tied to that end. Right, you know? right. Like the end may change. And so like projects like this, I can see, like I know people that are, and I'm sure you do too, who are like, I cannot move forward until I know how every piece of the puzzle fits in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. God bless those people. I am not that person. Yeah, no, I don't think I am either. Uh, I, I admire that. I admire people who can lay out, you know, such a detailed roadmap for themselves so that, you know, they never just, you know, feel like throwing their, throwing their machine through the window and, right. and right. Know, burning the whole joint down, um, which can happen when things go wonky on you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've found like for myself, Again, and, it, and it's it's probably that's that same sort of rust, restlessness that keeps me from trying to do the same thing over and over. If you know, if I catch myself in feeling like something is overwrought and and too, uh, it's just not spontaneous enough. Then then I do I immediately become suspicious of it, and I feel yeah. like it's losing some of its some of the natural juice that that's there that's powering me, and so. So I think it's, it's good if you can embrace it. Like not everyone can do that. Like it's writing is a sort of, it's a kind of free fall and you don't know if you're going to be able to stitch together a parachute on the way down. Right. Um, and I've and, always, 
I've always told folks like there's two kinds of art. There's the art that's pretty and perfect and pristine. And I understand that. I don't like, I mean, I can aesthetically admire it. And then there's mm-hmm. stuff that's like, you can see threads are hanging off of it and it's not quite finished. And like, it's maybe not the way that like, if somebody would have gone back and polished it, it would have looked, but like, it feels real. Um, yeah. I think, I think a, a, there's a, a rule that I have. If I have any rules at all, when it comes to things that are creative, I do have a rule that if there is some sort of happy accident inside of it, Um, like I will polish things to the best of my ability, but I insist on leaving a little bit of imperfection in there so that the evil can get out. Like, like I, I, I do, I definitely do that with every project. I know for a fact that I, I make a conscious decision to, to, to not make it so polished that it becomes grotesque, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I tell, like I used to tell young writers all the time, the art is in the writing. The, mm-hmm. the book is a product. Like if you, if your life is tied to how well the product does, you'll never be happy. Yeah, if yeah. you enjoy the art of the, of the making of the thing, then you can survive. Right. That's, right. That's, because the other thing is out of your control completely. Yeah. For instance, a pandemic may hit. Sure. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, that'll never, ah, fuck. No, that happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so when, when does the, the audio version come out? Do we know? So the, uh, the audio version I think is going to land, uh, you know, I'm kind of a, a sentimental guy. And so my release date is going to be the date of my anniversary because the original book was dedicated to my wife and I think it came out on my birthday. And so, that to me makes sense. So it should be the 24th of May. Hopefully the audio will be available. I mean, at the very least, it'll be available from me on my website. Uh, if, if things fall right, it'll also be available like, like on audible and, you know, all, all kinds of other places. Um, we will see if they fall that way or not. There's, there's no way to, to know at this point. Right. Um, and I think th- there's also going to be the, the ebook. If anybody's interested in that, is going to land on that same day as well. That's um, awesome. And the the print, you know, I've got a, a few print editions floating around here that that people can get from my website too. So, whichever way you feel like reading that book or listening to it or whatever, there's there will hopefully be a way for you to engage with it. So. That's you. This is the first time I've ever had. Not only you're like a double first. Like not only. I don't, I think you're my first poet, although you do other uh-huh. stuff, but also the first sort of audio centric bird, like this was specifically created for the audio, right? Yeah. Like all yeah, of this yeah. was sort of built around this thing. Um, and I'm, I just think that's, I, I just think the idea and process of putting it together is cool as shit. And I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, no, I, I hope that, I hope that that is everyone's you know, sort of takeaway <laughs> from it. Like, you know, it took, it took some doing and there were times in the middle of it where I thought like, you know, what in the world are you doing? This is impossible. But, you know, now that I'm, you know, getting near the end zone anyways, and I can, I can see the finish line. It, it seems like it, it feels very different than, than other stuff that I've seen before. I, I mean, to the point that I'm not even sure if it will be approved as an audiobook for, um, for like audible and other places like that because of, the number of narrators and the, the, the way, just the way that it's built is completely different than other audiobooks. And so always in my mind, I think that's a strength, which is why 
in terms of business, I'm a huge failure because <laughs> uh, <laughs> everybody in business wants the same thing, only different. And I'm like, no, 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 you want different. Right. But uh, yeah, so I, I appreciate the, the, the kind words and, and I hope that other people feel the same way as you do, Brad. Hey, man, thanks for taking time to talk with me. And uh, I hope we get to do this again soon. Sounds good, man. I'm here if you need it. All right, buddy. Take care. All righty. You too. Dizzy on a big bottle of Chimay, Sam Cook blaring in your writing room, and you're celebrating the first time your work has been translated and published in French. There you have it. Me and Osho McCreesh, his book, A Deep and Gorgeous Thirst, is one you need to go buy today. I cannot wait to buy it, download it, watch the whole thing. I've been looking at clips and all the sort of things around it. I intentionally hold off on seeing whole projects till after I interview people because that's how I enjoy them. I hope you do as well. Just a reminder, if you like the program, leave a review on Apple, Stitcher, wherever you listen to it. At thebradking.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can click on Bookshop and buy any of the books from authors that are on the program. And on May 29th, virtual happy hour and book club with Janelle Brown. I hope that you guys are doing okay. I hope you're reading. I hope that you're washing your hands. I hope that you are keeping socially distant as we begin to open the country back up. I've really enjoyed doing these during this time, and I'm really looking forward to doing more of them when the pandemic is over or subsides or moves into whatever the next phase is, because meeting all of these folks, hearing all these projects has really given me life throughout this whole thing, and I hope it has for you as well. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hot patching holes in the sheetrock or finding a replacement windshield after your buddy's busted up with his woman, again. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.